Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope the spring is treating you all well. Hope your allergies aren't too horrible. It's been beautifully overcast in LA. Not exactly beach weather, but I'm loving it. Speaking of cloudy days, in about a month, I'm going to be taking a road trip with my family up to see my brother graduate with his master's from Western Oregon University. Congrats, Ethan. So proud to see a Sasquatch like yourself make it in mainstream society. Anyway, I'm going to be pre-recording an episode for that week, and I want to talk all about the ghosts of the Pacific Northwest. Hopefully, while I'm up there, I'll be able to check some of them out, and I'll be in the Corvallis area of Oregon. So if any of you know any good leads on spooky stories from the PNW, send them my way. I'll probably be recording that episode over this and next week, so just DM me on Instagram or Twitter, or feel free to send them to scarytosleep at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited about this week's stories. I think I say that every week, but it's true every week. Every week, I'm really excited. So back when I did my kids episode, I didn't really specify an age range or anything. So I got a few stories from teens that just seemed a little too advanced or dark for the kids episode. And to tell you the truth, the more I read, the more I realized they were so good, they'd feel right at home in a normal episode. But I thought I'd keep them together anyway. So this episode's stories were all written by 15 and 16 year olds. They range from ballerinas to battlefields, and I think you guys are going to love them as much as I did. First up is a story simply titled Ballet Horror by Nicole, age 16. Minkus's Don Quixote blares from stage left, and I'm dazzled in illumination, heads crane in excitement of what is to come. The stage lights glare with intensity as they fill the stage. It spills into the stalls, and I see the faces of the first rows, bright, happy faces, full of appreciation. The audience and I are joined in that feeling of excitement. A chain of battles to come, and now for the spider. Its black hair is coiled like wire points, in position to pierce its opponent's flesh. The terror continues as it is scuttling along the stage, showcasing the great mouthful of sharp fangs stashed in its cavernous mouth, its hinges further open. It leaves a trail of gloppy saliva, which then dribbles down its bulbous chest. However, the spider's best attempts are to fail, as Don Quixote swishes his sword, frantically resulting in the wounding of the spider. The anticipation continues, as to follow is my famous routine, Pirouette, and again, and again, and again. The velvet seats are a flash of blood red as I spin frantically on my snug point shoe. Control, time my head movements, fix on a spot. The luminous scenery encloses me in color, 
slowly isolating me in my own imagination. Yet there are a thousand audience members watching me. I'm breathless with exertion and the emotion of the piece, beat after beat, turn after turn, pirouette after pirouette. The bright theater lights dim and the audience is silent for a moment. I feel their rapt attention. It is as though the building is holding its breath. Then they animate, vibrating the theater with their noise and applause. They finally become hushed with the last rise and fall of the curtain call. Before I know it, the bright curtain falls for the final time of the night. I enter the busy streets of New York. After a matinee performance, I so often need the fresh air and bustle of life around me. All I can see is the vast array of shops rising out of the ground. Big, mighty signs. Designer labels hoping to persuade customers and tourists. In the midst of it all, a hand is thrust out to me. A ballet shoe and a pen. I smile, and I take the soft, pink satin in my hands. I sign, thank yous, goodbyes, and more warm smiles. After a performance, the sweet, candied smell of street vendors selling roasted peanuts is tempting. The gush of warm air as you stroll by from the subways is invigorating. As usual, people rush by me in the craziness of New York. Yet, as I walk, the street seems like a scene from a story, a dark fairy tale. In my head, the Don Quixote music continually whirs and it causes a heavy mist inside me. My feet feel heavy, and suddenly, I'm outside a small boutique. The window is musky, but through it I can see various point shoes hanging limply on the rack, objects of painful beauty, torture devices that produce art. My feet tingle. The range of pinks and satins draped around the room. They are all repositories for years of memories, and I wonder who the girls were. As I enter, the bell tinkles above my head. The mountain of point shoes in front seduces me in, but the store is unkempt. Masks hang on the walls, pointed Spanish fans. A shopkeeper watches a fly buzz around the room. He sees me and springs forward. His face is animated with an indefinable smile. His nebulous black eyes reflect me, seemingly eight times, and they widen when he sees my New York ballet sweater. My head feels sticky and thick, like I'm twisting in poisonous candy floss. The shopkeeper scuttles round my side of the counter. His long, thin fingers grasp a pair of delicate pink point shoes. The shoes shine in his hands, his hands covered in black, coiled hairs. He calls me to the counter and I lean in, pulled in. Again his wide eyes, and now a high-pitched voice. 
These point shoes were of great importance. But you know that, don't you? A clock is ticking nearby, but it feels like time has slowed down. Time has stopped. The fly buzzes. Why is the buzzing so loud? And still, the pair of point shoes pull at me, like gravity. Standing in the shabby shop, I nervously take the unyielding, unfamiliar, familiar point shoe in my hand. My hand shakes. The shopkeeper seems to kiss the air in delight, his big eyes watching me hungrily. My head in the poison and mesh again. No, no thank you. I don't want them. Yes. You do? Yes. The glues encased with pink satin have long ago melded to make this iconic, agonizing block. Moving it around my grasp, I wonder how it might fit me. How could this instrument of torture serve me? The black box suddenly seems so sturdy as I inspect it. The back sole has been signed. Svetlana Zakharova herself. Their sheer experience intimidates me. The shoes want to get to know me, train me. I will not let them down. I pay for them. Delicately, I put them in my bag and open the shop door, glancing behind once more at the shopkeeper. The excitement in his face makes mine balloon out of my chest. His lustful excitement is infectious like a bite. His and mine together, the excitement threatens to engulf me. He knows exactly what is happening. I mumble a thank you. A slow, wide smile spreads on his face. It's your destiny. Then he laughs, and his laugh scurs and skips over me in thick, black, wiry coils that scrape and tickle my skin. I back out of the door to the sound of his soft laughter, and all the way back to the theater I can feel the point shoes thumping, thrumming, thudding in my bag. They are vibrating with life. They whisper to me. They call to me. In my dressing room, the well-worn, dusted, satin-backed points close in on my feet in what feels like slow motion, sticking abruptly to my skin. My feet are career-tattered. They're tough. They are leathery and calloused. They are my weapons and my art. My dressing room is as quiet as a coffin, and it feels as tight. The white, glaring bulbs on my dressing room mirror ooze heat, like viscous slime covering my flushed cheeks. I look down at my feet, but they are not my own. They are now constricted into a solid metal box. The satin sides of the point shoes clamp around my feet, and I am trapped in silent, exhilarated fear. 
the shoes lead me to the stage where Minkus's Don Quixote creaks from stage left, and I'm alone in the darkness forever. I pirouette, and again, and again, and again. The stage lights dim into a nothingness with the age of centuries. Shadows spill into the stalls and I see the faces of the first rows. Death masks, putrid flesh and broken bones. The audience and I are joined in a feeling of horror, a millennia of unease. I pirouette, and again, and again, and again. There is no choice in my movements now. And now for the spider. Its black hair is coiled like wire points. It is scuttling along the stage. It leaves a trail of gloppy saliva, which then dribbles down its bulbous chest. The spider is enormous now and looms over the audience, picking some up and biting on their heads. The pallid scenery circles me in darkness, slowly isolating me in someone else's imagination. And there are only phantom audience members watching me now. I'm breathless with the nearness of death in someone else's story. Beat after beat, turn after turn, pirouette after pirouette. The dead theater lights reduce and reduce to a star light years away, and the audience is still and silent. They applaud, but no noise comes from their moving, skeletal, maggot-swarming hands. The only noise is the last death rattle of what was once the rise and fall of the curtain call. Before I know it, the curtain lifts again. Minkus's Don Quixote creaks from stage left, and I'm alone in the darkness of forever. I pirouette, and again, and again, and again. Hey everybody, you know one of my favorite things is telling you about new podcasts that I think you would love, and I'm going to tell you all about Family Ghosts. Season 2 of Family Ghosts is a podcast that takes a closer look at the legendary tales that shape our family histories. Every house is haunted. In each episode of Family Ghosts, we investigate the true story behind a mysterious figure whose legend has followed a family for generations. Grandmothers who were secretly jewel smugglers, uncles who led double lives, siblings who vanished without a trace. These specters cast shadows over our lives in ways that might not be immediately obvious, 
but we are all formed in part by our familial collections of secrets, intrigues, and myths. And by engaging with each other's legends, maybe we can see each other's reality more clearly. On Family Ghosts, the families are real, the ghosts are metaphorical, and the truth is always relative. Dig into someone's unanswered question about their own family history. Meet and confront the people and events who shape a family's legacy for generations. This is a new season. New episodes come out every Wednesday with stories like a three-episode series on the love family cult, the secrets revealed by a long-lost stack of love letters, and a missing container of Chinese food that has haunted a family for 25 years. Hmm. The LA Times calls it quirky meditation. The Irish Times says it feels like listening to an especially fascinating acquaintance tell a long story in a pub through the lens of a 1990s American high school comedy. Please subscribe to Family Ghosts wherever you get your podcasts. I'll leave a link in the show notes. This next story is called The Rapture is Silent by Blair, aged 15. The buildings long ago crashed down into each other and the cities devoured themselves. Sometimes I can smell metal coming from them. Burning, smoldering metal. I only go in there when I have to, but I'm following the dog again. I thought I had lost him last week. Now he's reappeared. Standing on the edge of the old highway, I see the damaged road up close. It's ragged, lying broken, ready to trip you up. The tarmac, left to its own devices, looks ancient now. It conspires with the trees and shrubs growing out as if to catch you, if you aren't careful. I jump over a large piece of tarmac, my worn boots flapping when I land. Need to find a new pair. There's so little sound now. There's sound when the buildings collapse, and a couple of times briefly, when other survivors are on the road. I've hidden from all of them so far, but they're mostly quiet, silent even, like me. It is 2,325 days and counting since I have been left on this deserted world by myself alone, and I'm not ashamed to admit I am still scared some of the time. I've been sleeping in a different building each night, sometimes camping on the ground. Trees are good to shelter under if it rains. I even like the soft sound of rain on my tent. Nature takes back the night with sound. An animal far off. I have a one-man tent scavenged from a camping goods store. Now is the winter of our discount tent. That made me laugh. It was the first time I'd laughed in a long time. But the sound of my own voice in the dead air was terrifying. I stopped, hand covering my mouth. I cried a little that night as I lay in the camping goods store, deserted and dark. A tent had been set up for the display. 
the only tent not to have been scavenged. Too much to bother to dismantle it. I crawled in. The door to the store had been broken in, but a key still sat in the lock. I imagined the manager opening up just before he disappeared, like the rest of them. Hand outstretched. Did they know what was happening to them? Did they know how lost we'd be? The ones left behind? By that point, I knew I wasn't the only one to survive, but also by then I knew some survivors were worth staying away from. Far away from. It was the next morning that I saw the dog. He was by the roadside, sniffing the air. With my tent on my back, the sound of my own feet is all I hear as I trudge along the cracked sidewalk. I reach a grocery store the dog is heading towards, the door half open. I am quiet. Someone could be in here. As I walk in, the building shakes. Cans drop and roll under shelves. I stand there helplessly, watching the dog pad easily up and down the aisle. I feel numb. Strange. The dog stops, looks around, wags his tail. I walk up the aisle, slowly checking over my shoulder. I take some canned goods that are there. The dog comes close to me, wags his tail again. This is the closest he has come to me. I call him God, as it is dog spelt backwards. He's the first dog I've seen. Outside on the street, God is waiting for me. I realize now that's what he's been doing all this time, leading me to something. He is small and wiry and shivers. During the day, he searches, finding food and comfort like an expert. I feel sorry for him, as his once white fur coat is matted all over. But he's clever at surviving. He is scrawny, though. His ribs dig out. He looks like a mutt, but I can't be sure. He is stopped for the night near a crop of trees. I do the same and watch him as he watches me. The dusk falls on me like a damp cloak, and it's frightening in its thickness. The morning sees me wake from the old dream. It's usually the morning they left. I wake up late, thinking everyone has left for work or school. Usually when I got up, I could hear the reassuring noise of the street, garage doors opening, families piling into cars, the thud of the paper on the mat. It doesn't happen. In the dream, I spend the day looking in all the neighboring houses, as I did all those days ago. Watching the dog shake off his sleep, I remember that my own house became too unsafe a long time ago. That's when I decided to walk to another town to find people. I knew I couldn't be the only one, and if I was, why me? But the first people I saw taught me caution. I was walking along the dusty pathway heading towards an old five-story building, which seemed to be once an office. I was following a man about a half mile ahead of me. From his movements, he looked young, carrying a backpack. I held back a little and walked slower so he wouldn't see me. He was heading towards the office building. 
It was an automatic door, although there were dumpsters blocking the main entrance. I crawled through a smashed window and cut my leg on the sharp edge of the glass. But I had been alone for a while by then and learned quickly how to deal with scrapes and illness. I was in. It was hot in this building. I smelled fire, but not like the fire from the crumpled building, no. This was a bonfire. I could sense someone or something in the building. I took silent steps up a large, cold, blue staircase, as if an ogre lived there and I was its prisoner. I was finally up. I took a look out of the destroyed windows, looking how far I had come. Behind the broken windows, there was a dark corridor leading four ways, two doors opposite at either side of them. I heard harsh voices coming from the back left room. There were tears in my eyes. Maybe I was crying because I found someone. Middle-aged male voices. One of them was shouting. Suddenly, bang. Gunshot. I stood very still, quiet. Suddenly, this was a very bad idea. I left town that night. I'm back with the dog again, and we're out of the city. I think he wants me to follow him down the country lane. He barks and wags his tail at me like he's trying to talk to me. The path is long. Tiny rocks all over the dusty pathway. Above me, the sky is bright blue with puffs of clouds like candy floss. Beside me, for many miles, it seems, of cornfields. I keep my head down and watch my feet skilf through the dusty mud. My boots are still flapping. The dog is barking at me quite loudly now, and he makes me stop. He's looking up at me with his amazing brown eyes. He wags his tail continuously. This is the first time I've properly seen him up close. I look ahead of me to try to get my bearings, and away in the distance, I can see a campsite. There are about 20 tents lying about dotted around and some wooden huts. I hear the sound of children laughing, a sound I thought I had forgotten, and everything feels normal again. I kneel down and pat God and smile. His fur is like wire, but I like the feel of it. I get up and we walk. This next story is The Gods of War by Cameron, age 16. This one isn't a traditional horror story per se, but I think we can all agree that the horrors of war are probably some of the scariest things anyone could ever experience. So I kept this one in because it's so well written, and for the people who actually lived these horrors, I know it really was truly a living nightmare. Here you go. The snow was a white ivory, 
and it lay thickly on the frozen Russian earth the winter of 1942. It continued to fall and slept where it landed. The bombed out buildings seemed to sway dangerously in the cold air. They were broken, like the Russian people, and the smell of burning was everywhere. 19-year-old Sergeant Viktor Reznov watched from a slanted roof behind a wall of snow as a young boy skirted around the corner of a broken building, scrounging on anything he could find. Strong German feet mashed the newly fallen snow into hard, hard ice. The boy stepped out as he held his hands out for supplies, maybe some bread. A shot rang out. Victor watched him fall to the ground. Victor had a gentle look to his face, crimeless and innocent. His uniform was stained with dirt and blood. His mouth was set firm, but his eyes are tired, and they search through the snow. As the German tanks roared and filled the air with thick fumes, Victor gave his orders. The morning blue sky watched over the action happening below, brightly reflecting the thick snow on the ground and the blood from the child. Victor felt a nudge on his shoulder. Nikolai pointed down. The Germans had with them Russian prisoners, looking drained of life. There's nothing we can do for them, said Nikolai. I know. Victor turned away from the site. Take shelter. We'll move out tonight. Below, the German command made their headquarters in one of the few buildings still inhabitable. Victor and his men waited, and the night fell as heavy as the snow. In the growing darkness, Nikolai rolled a cigarette but the light was fading and his hands were cold. Victor took the unrolled cigarette. Here, give me that. He rolled it for his friend and handed it back. Looking at the thin roll-up, Nikolai spat. Damn war. No decent tobacco. Be none soon. He sighed. Wonder what mother is making for supper tonight. Something good, I presume. When is it ever bad? <laughs> That's true, Nick. Don't worry, soon we will be back home. I hope so. Here, finish it. Nikolai passed the cigarette over to Victor. I'll buy you a full packet when we arrive home. He looked down at his friend's flapping boots. And a new pair of boots. And with that, Victor stubbed out the cigarette and looked over the wall positions. They held their breaths while aiming down the scope. The silence of the cold night filled the air. Far off, a glass window shattered the silence. Candles were lit in the Germans' building. Slowly but surely, the Germans reached the eye of the Soviet sniper scope. All that was left was to pull the first cold, icy trigger. Victor gave the command. 
figures in the window were pushed back with the force of the bullets. The recoil of the gun hit Victor's shoulder. Move out. Victor and his men moved across the frozen streets. The body of the young boy lay crumpled in the snow. The memory of the past haunted Victor again as he looked down. All the young men he'd killed. But instead of mourning, Victor bent down and untied the boy's boots and took them. Walking over to Nikolai, he handed him the boots. They climbed down. Victor and his men scattered through the building. Floorboards cracked against the snow-caked boots. The night fell silent again. They reached the third floor. It was a ground-to-ground fight. Bang. A handful of remaining Germans. Victor cocked back his rifle and fired at a shadowy figure moving towards him. Chaos. Germans appeared out of darkened corners. Hold your ground. Move quietly. Silence again. Moving silently round a corner into a long corridor, Victor and Nikolai listened for the enemy. Blue moonlight bleeds in through a broken window. Victor saw a figure at the end of the corridor. A German aimed towards Nikolai. Quickly, Victor squeezed his rifle, and the young German staggered back. Smiling, he turned to Nikolai. You almost had it there. He started to laugh, but it stopped in his throat when he saw Nikolai on the ground. The shot from the German was a good one. Through the throat, Nikolai sputtered blood, and he lay on the cold, hard floor. Victor's emotions had crumbled, just like the city. He untied the boots he had given his friend, retrieved them, took the tobacco tin strapped to his backpack, tucked it into his pocket. Move out. Take our dead. Victor watched his men exit the house. He took out Nikolai's tobacco tin and began to roll. At the end of the corridor, the young German stirred. He had escaped death. He was wounded, though. Victor approached him, but instead of firing, he reached down to the German. The young soldier struggled up. There was an innocence between the two. They knew they both had no choice in this battle. Surviving the war was the only option. Victor then slid down the wall next to the wounded soldier. They both looked out to the blast in the wall, to the disintegrating city. From a dark corner of the room, Victor heard a low growl. Sophie! The young German commands and the growl stops. Come here! A soft-furred German shepherd came out of the darkness and sniffed the blood seeping from the young German's jacket. Victor couldn't tell how bad it was. The dog's eyes were alert and sad. It still wore its medical Red Cross vest. Hello, Sophie, Victor said in German. The young soldier raised his eyebrows in surprise. There was a pause as Victor scratched Sophie's ear. She stank, but then they all did. Do you have a name? asked the German. Yes, Commander Resnoff. 
but call me Victor. The name's Sergeant Zelig. Carl. Victor spotted the slight tip of a photograph peeking out of Carl's pocket. I see you have someone to return to, huh? Asked Victor. Yes. Yes, that's my girl. Mia. He lifted the image out and handed it to Victor. Victor looked at the image, and thoughts of home came to him. I experience the same. I have a mother and a father who need me. And handed over the blood-stained image to the sergeant. The sound of Victor's men upstairs and below them, searching the house. The dog panting gently beside them. I have a home to return to, and so do you. But Carl coughed blood. The sun began to rise. Victor and Carl forced themselves up to leave, but with that movement, Carl groaned in pain and struggled to keep his balance. Leave me, he said with a pale face. I guess I'm not getting home after all. Victor could say nothing. Victor sat and watched the light rise with the sun and the dog. Sophie crept in close and lay her head on Carl's legs. When the dog moved to Victor and sniffed his hand, he knew it was over. Victor looked at Carl's boots. He hadn't the heart. You coming with me, Sophie? The dog looked up at him, back at her dead master, and back again. And for our last story of tonight, this is The Tinkling of the Musical Box by Nicole, age 16. stretched hallway was remote and deep. It lengthened out endlessly in front of her. It smelled of damp and bleach. As her baby legs crawled along the soft carpet, the open window seemed very high. It gaped in the nighttime air and smiled toothlessly at her, blunt and obtuse. The silvery curtain flapped in the wind menacingly. She crawled along towards the dark entryway, leading into her bedroom, as if someone was drawing her in there. But it was gloomy and oppressive, and she didn't want to go in. Still, she crawled towards her cot, which sat, strangely, in the middle of the room, as it had never done before. It shouldn't be there, like that. And why was her room so dark and gloomy? dark wallpaper hanging raggedly in patches and damp clumps. Suddenly, music tinkled loudly, and the opening of a small box caught her eye. It shimmered with gold as the small ballerina inside spun round robotically. Over the music, she began to hear the clicking of the mechanism. The tickling music danced prettily around the room. As her baby fingers prodded the dancing woman, a long, dark shadow fell over the floor. Turning, 
she saw a tall figure. It towered over her in a cowboy hat, and she heard the click of his boots as he stepped nebulously towards her. She screamed as he picked her up. Rose woke to the ash Seattle skies, the old dream still in her head. The dark sleet of the wild heavens opened up over the city as the rain cracked and unfolded. The wind whipped the tall, lanky buildings as they reached into the darkness of the rain. Looking out of her box-shaped window, she saw the city below. The wet crowds put up umbrellas and pulled up coat collars. They rushed hurriedly, splashing in and out of the wet sidewalks. Shadows rushed in and out, and then she saw the figure in the cowboy hat. She saw him everywhere. The window pane was nasty with her breath as she looked out over the city. The space needle peeked out proudly over the rest of the buildings. Rose's studio apartment was small, neat, and tidy, and she tucked in her sheets of the high bunk bed that hung over the small bedroom corner of the studio. While looking at herself in the mirror, she brushed her long, straight, dark hair, and it fell down her back. She wondered if today would be the day when Cowboy Hat would finally find her. She rubbed her dark eyes and focused on her freckled face as she moved closer to the mirror. Rose glanced at the clock while walking towards her closet, picking out her smartest clothes for work. In the damp morning air, she searched her pockets for the keys and opened the door to the library. As she entered, she glanced at the soaring bookshelves before closing the door behind her. How she loved those towers of books. Other people's stories, fictions, and futures. She strolled over towards her desk and set her bag down. At the corner of her eye, she noticed last night's returns on the desk. She shuffled over towards the mess and put the books back into place. Checked the other bookshelves to make sure all the books were lined up and neat. As she walked back over towards her desk, she scanned the room again before opening. The rain was pouring down outside, battering heavily against the high window. The clock struck 9 a.m. The front door swung open and through them stumbled a young girl. She was tall and lanky and wearing a green and yellow striped jumper. Her small eyes danced around the large library behind enormous thick glasses, seeking out something or someone. She spun around like a child at a birthday party and knocked over a small bookcase, leaving a clutter of books all over the floor. Sorry, she called out as she walked by the mess she had just created. Rose rolled her eyes and forced a smile. She knelt down and started to pick up the books. The girl crouched down beside Rose and began picking up the books. L let me help. I'm so sorry. I'm always doing that. Rose continued to organize books. She gently took one out of the girl's hand and placed it on the shelf. The girl continued. Uh, I'm Amy. Rose looked at her. The new girl? The assistant. Rose's heart fell to her feet. I thought you might be, she sighed. 
The girl's small nose twitched slightly, like a dementedly happy rabbit. You weren't at the first interview. They told me all about you, that I'd be working with you, and I'm so excited to be starting. Her voice was high-pitched and tinkling. I've always wanted to be a librarian since I was a little girl. My mother was a librarian, too. I practically grew up in our local library where we used to live. I just love to read books. What's your favorite book? Rose took a breath on behalf of the girl. Let's get your timesheet. She walked quickly towards her desk and reached out for the third drawer down, where the timesheets were kept. Amy followed. Rose opened the drawer. The blank wooden space of the drawer stared up at her. Amy hovered over Rose's shoulder, looking into the empty drawer. What's wrong? They don't seem to be here, Rose mumbled. Perhaps they are in one of the other drawers? Replied Amy. She looked at Rose and grinned. Began to reach out for the top drawer to open it. They're not in there. I know exactly what's in there. But all the same, Rose checked the other drawers and then checked again. I am very organized and I am positive I put them in here for your arrival. Can you just finish organizing those books you knocked over and I'll get more sheets? Rose was starting to feel annoyed. Okay, sorry. Do you know where they are? Asked Amy. There are more sheets downstairs in the basement. Rose turned around and headed away from the girl. I'll wait here then. Her voice echoed from behind. Rose stood at the top of the staircase and switched on the flickering light. She walked carefully down the stairs, taking one step at a time. She reached the bottom. The smell of dust and dampness combed her nostrils. And bleach. How she hated that smell. So like the dream. She glanced back to make sure she left the door open. The brick walls stretched out in front of her and she looked up at the ceiling where the lights were dim. She walked towards the cardboard boxes and crates of paperwork, the floor stretching out in front of her. Rose knelt down and reached out for the stack of boxes in front of her. She noticed that they were all disorganized, which she found odd as she was sure she had well ordered them not so long ago. She scanned them looking for the timesheets. Seeing them, Rose grabbed the timesheets. She sighed to herself as she tucked the folder under her arm and crammed the boxes back into the chaotic mess they were in before. I really need to clean this place again, she said to herself as she slowly stood up and patted herself down from all the dust. Without warning, the door smashed shut. Rose was suddenly alarmed and darted back over towards the staircase. Excuse me, she called out as the flickering of the lights was becoming more frequent. I'm still down here. The basement went dark. Rose tried to get as far to the staircase as she could by stretching out her arms in front of her. She managed to grab the bottom of the railing. Rose stumbled backwards, tumbling down the stairs. As she fell, she saw the outline of a tall, lanky figure. It put a cowboy hat on its head, 
The figure looked down at Rose, and Rose saw the twinkle of large glasses in the darkness. The figure reached out. Suddenly, she felt a hand push at her shoulder. Down and down she went, and before everything went black, the last thing she saw was the figure as it placed a musical box at the top of the stairs, and opening the lid, it began to tinkle. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm always taking submissions. Just email your story to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com for consideration. You can also contact me through scareyoutosleep.com and click on the contact tab. This week, my beautiful Patreon subscriber is Melissa. Thank you so much, Melissa. Sending you a big warm hug over the airwaves. Thanks so much, you guys. Because of you, I'm stepping up my audio game. I now have a very nice fancy handheld recorder that I'm going to be taking with me on my journeys. I'll get some great sounds for the show, as well as some really nice ASMR type sounds that I'll probably use here at the end of the show and throughout and on Patreon. You can see it on my Instagram. If you want, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scarytosleep. My personal Instagram is Shelby B. Scott. That's where I have a picture of my new recorder. You can join the Facebook group and our amazing Scary to Sleep community, facebook.com slash groups slash scare you to sleep. I'm currently working on a new guided nightmare for Patreon. I'll let you know when that's out. So remember, for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon, you have access to all kinds of bonus episodes. I think it's about, I think I have like 11 right now. And I've had Patreon for less than a year, so I try to update it at least a couple of times a month with new episodes you will only ever hear there. For those of you who are new to the show, I have a full-length guided nightmare in my feed. Um, Just scroll back to find it if you're curious to know what a guided nightmare even is. (laughs) I think that's all, my beautifuls. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.